Welcome to Tisky Sour, which is tonight streamed from my bedroom because I am one of the 93,000 people who have tested positive for COVID-19 in the past 24 hours. Yes, I didn't miss the Omicron wave. It has got me. It's very mild at the moment. I am boosted. Hopefully that is going to make it all okay. But we'll see. Ash, you've been through this already, haven't you? Yeah, and unlike some people, I had the OG variant and I had no vaccine. So I was just out there raw dogging COVID, unlike you, man, who are wusses, if I may say so. I waited to get it until it was kind of comfortable to do so. Although it's very early days, maybe I'm going to go downhill after this. We have some great stories for you tonight, which was great to distract me from all my woes. We're talking about a crushing defeat of Boris Johnson in a by-election in North Shropshire. We're also talking about, maybe this is the early brain fog coming on, Chris Whitty getting attacked by the Conservatives and a bunch of other stories. You, You can find out what they are as they come about. Last night, in another crushing blow to Boris Johnson's authority, electors in Owen Paterson's old seat overturned a Tory majority of 22,000 and chose a Lib Dem to replace him. Owen Paterson, of course, resigned in disgrace over lobbying. This graphic shows how dramatic the turnaround was. So in the general election in 2019, 63% of people voted for the Conservatives, That's gone down to 32%, almost halved, and 10% voted for the Lib Dems, 47% yesterday voted for the Lib Dems. So an enormous swing. Um, We'll be talking about the Labour element of this slightly later on. Um, Some details about the seat make it even more remarkable that the Lib Dems won it. It's been held by the Tories for almost 200 years, and it voted 60% to leave. So that distinguishes it from from Cheshire and Amersham. That was a by-election that happened earlier this year, which, again, the Tories lost to the Lib Dems. But people thought then, ah, this is one of the the few remaining Tory remain seats. That's why it went Lib Dems. That explanation is not available here. In her acceptance speech, the new MP, that's Helen Morgan, took aim at Boris Johnson. Tonight, the people of North Shropshire have spoken on behalf of the British people. They've said loudly and clearly, Boris Johnson, the party is over. Your government, run on lies and bluster, will be held accountable. It will be scrutinised, it will be challenged, and it can and will be defeated. Roger Gale is a backbench Tory MP. He appeared to agree with the analysis of the Lib Dems. He spoke to Radio 4 this morning. This has to be seen as a referendum on the Prime Minister's performance, and I think that the Prime Minister is now in last order's time. Um, Two strikes already one earlier this week in the vote in the Commons. Now this. One more strike and he's out. He's out. You think there could be a change of Prime Minister, a change of leader in the Conservative Party, in short order? The Conservative Party does has a reputation for not taking prisoners. Um, if the Prime Minister fails, the Prime Minister goes. We got rid of a good Prime Minister to install Mr Johnson. Mr. Johnson has to prove that he's capable of being a good prime minister. And at the moment, it's quite clear that the public don't think that that's the case. As was probably quite clear from that clip, Roger Gale was never a fan of of Boris Johnson. He was there speaking very praisingly about Theresa May. He backed Jeremy Hunt in the leadership election. Speaking for the government, party co-chair Oliver Dowden tried to downplay the significance of the by-election result. Governments do lose by-elections midterm. If the Liberal Democrats did as well in general elections as they did in by-elections, 
they would have been in power for most of the past 50 years. It's not usually the case that governments win by-elections when they are in power. We didn't win a single by-election between 1989 and 2014 in power. But nonetheless, I do accept the message sent by voters in Shropshire that they're, they're fed up. We have heard that message and we need to make sure we're focused on with getting on with the job. And that's exactly what we're doing. So Oliver Dowden is right. Governments do tend to lose by-elections. It's often an opportunity to, for people to make a protest vote, often at a general election. Those seats where an upset happens goes back to the party that usually wins them. However, by-election losses aren't normally this big. So the 34-point swing from the Conservatives to the Lib Dems makes this the seventh biggest by-election swing ever. It's a pretty big deal. Ash, who do you side with, Oliver Dowden or Roger Gale? Is this, a, is this significant for the Conservatives? Is, it, is this a, a referendum on Boris Johnson, which means he's, he's now a, a lame duck? Or is this just, just another by-election? I think there's multiple things going on. Let's start with Boris Johnson. His authority almost certainly is damaged. Whether it's fatally damaged depends on whether you get the critical mass of letters into the chair of the 1922 committee, Graham Brady. And I think that that media appearance earlier on saying Boris Johnson is on his last orders, it's one more strike and he's out, is a way of also reminding other disgruntled Tory backbenchers, backbenchers, oi, Graham Brady, his DMs are open. Something has happened in the last month, which is that the media tone has greatly shifted. So we went from the beginning of the Owen Patterson lobbying scandal with Laura Koonsberg framing it as, oh, it's a Westminster Village story, it's not very important. But that grave miscalculation not only resulted in the by-election, which produced a humiliating loss, but also just set the chain off on a you know, set of stories which are about unfairness, corruption, and rule-breaking. That then rolls into Partygate, the fact that Boris Johnson was pictured hosting quiz inside Downing Street, the fact that other CCHQ staff were having a party with Sean Bailey, there was one at the Department of Transport, there was one at the Department of Education, now emerges uh, that Simon Case, the Cabinet Secretary, has had one too. And those media stories bookending the North Shropshire by-election, I think, are really significant. It does, I think, give an excuse for voters to go, we can give the government a bloody nose in a way that maybe we wouldn't normally in a general election. And also you have a lower turnout because it's a December election. It's a by-election. The third thing that's going on, and what will be interesting to see is whether this holds up or what happens to it at a general election, is that the two Lib Dem wins this year of Chesham and Amersham and North Shropshire they might be the thing which we've seen quite often, which is the Lib Dems do well in a by-election, but it goes back to the Tories at the subsequent general election. Or this could be part of a longer-term trend of cracks, fissures, and perhaps eventual crumbling of the blue wall. One of the things that I wrote in the Quartado this morning, which you will have read, Michael, is that it's a difficult thing for the Conservative Party to, to adjust to. They won Hartlepool. They took Batley and Spen to a knife edge, but the loss of two solid, safe seats of Cheshire and Amersham and, of course, North Shropshire will be giving a lot of the Conservative Party pause for thought. Is Johnson the man who can keep together that 2019 coalition or has he won some quite volatile seats in the North and Midlands at the expense of once safe, reliable ones in the southeast and rural constituencies? Let's go to Boris Johnson's take. 
as to why the Conservatives lost in North Shropshire. Here he is speaking to Sam Coates from Sky. I think that people are frustrated and I understand that uh, what the... Basically what's been going wrong, Sam, is that uh, the in the last few weeks, uh, some things have been going very well, but what the, the people have been hearing, what people have been hearing is just a constant uh, litany of stuff about uh, politics and politicians and stuff that isn't about them and isn't about the things that we can do uh, to make life better. And so to that extent, uh, uh, of course, you're right. And I think that the, the, it, the, the job of the government is to make people like you, Sam, uh, interested in uh, the booster rollout and in, and in skills and in, in housing and in everything else that we're, that we're doing. And unfortunately, you're, you're totally right, uh, we haven't been able to get the focus on those issues. Now, some have been saying that was Boris Johnson blaming the media. I suppose the, the more sympathetic interpretation is he's saying, you know, it's our fault that we've given you all of this gossip to write about instead of the real issues. Saying, well, obviously, you're going to write about the parties. We should have had the parties. At the same time, if people were to focus on the substantive issues, I mean, a lot of people died this year. And, and a lot of that was because of mistakes made by Boris Johnson. So I don't think moving to policies is necessarily going to help them. Ash, what did you make of, of, of that response from Boris Johnson? It was less about what he said and more about how he appeared. I don't know about you, Michael, but he didn't seem confident. He didn't seem fluent. He very rarely does. But there was a real lack of optimism, energy, dynamism, what you would even call Johnsonian bluster. This is somebody who was meandering around looking for an answer, but there was something in his eyes which looked, I think, panicky and a bit shook, is what I'd say. There were some tweets from Dominic Cummings today, which I thought were interesting. I don't buy the entirety of his analysis of the situation. There are some things in terms of where he thinks the balance of power is, which I disagree on. But in terms of a description of the personality, I think there was something which does ring true, which is that Boris Johnson is prone to panic. He doesn't really have an explanation for either what he does well or what he does badly. Uh, He is unable to rely on the loyalty of those in his inner circle. There are people briefing against him. There are now ministers like Liz Truss who are being that bit more blatant about their bid for the top job. And this is a politician who doesn't have the critical faculties, the political strategy to work their own way out of it. He's a man who is pleading with God for a solution to fall in his lap. I think, yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? I, I wonder if, well, for one, he could have been grinning underneath the, the mask. We don't know. But also, I, I suppose he probably wanted to look serious because the MPs are now saying, look, Boris, this isn't a joke anymore. People, we have to be confident that you are going to change things. So maybe that's why he's coming out looking a bit more like broken and like he's actually taking this seriously because he thinks that that might appease some of them. The headlines from the Shropshire by-election will rightly focus on it being a humiliation for the Conservative Party. But Labour also lost ground in the constituency. The party fell from second place in 2019 to third place. This time around, they got 9.7%. That's the lowest it's been in the constituency since it was created in 1983. And there were some, you know, some people pointing this out in, in the media. Dan Hodges from the Mail on Sunday tweeted, on the by-election, disastrous result for Boris, but a pretty terrible result for Starmer as well. 
So despite commentary like that, Labour frontbenchers don't seem too worried about the by-election result. Jonathan Reynolds is the shadow business secretary. He explained his thoughts. The Liberal Democrats, the nature of them, they're they're not a party with respect with any kind of strong ideological moorings. That makes them a very potent by-election force. They can stand for one thing in one town and a different thing in the town next door. Now, that's not the case for us. We're a party of government. We seek to run the whole country and form a government. But clearly, the Liberal Democrats, we know from history, are a a party because of that unique position. They can be a potent force in by-elections, and we've seen that. That doesn't detract from the fact that the only way to get rid of this Conservative government will be a Labour government. And that's where I think people are increasingly looking to and turning to, and the polls reflect that. That was Jonathan Reynolds saying the Lib Dems are sort of uniquely well-placed to take advantage for, of, of by-elections. If it was a protest vote against the Tories, people are more likely to go for this sort of empty vessel of a party in the, in the shape of the Lib Dems. And he's saying that if you look at the national polls, when it comes to a general election, when people are choosing a government, Labour are actually in you know, a decent place at this point. They're a few points ahead of the Conservatives. Ash, who is right, Jonathan Reynolds or Dan Hodges? Oh, well, so who's... Right, somebody who has been consistently wrong on everything else, or Jonathan Reynolds, who I think is just wrong this one time on TV. You're putting me in an impossible position in terms of giving an answer, Michael. I do think that it's a bad result for Starmer, and I'll tell you why. There is a lot of talk about this progressive alliance, and that in order for Labour to make any kind of electoral breakthrough, because we have a first-past-the-post system, what progressives have to do is vote for who's most likely to win in any given constituency. So in many constituencies, that is going to be Labour. In some, like North Shropshire, where the Lib Dems do have space to do unexpectedly well, uh, that might mean loaning your vote to the Liberal Democrats. Now, I see that argument. The problem is, is that there is no such thing as progressive alliance that exists in party politics at the moment. So even if you were somebody who would normally vote Labour, but go, you know, I'm going to vote Liberal Democrat, reduce the government's majority, and it will enable uh, the Liberal Democrats to go into coalition with Labour after a general election is there's nothing to say that the Liberal Democrats would choose a coalition with Labour over the Conservatives. We saw what happened in 2010. If Boris Johnson was no longer the Tory leader, say it was Rishi Sunak or indeed ex-Remainer Liz Truss, you can imagine a universe in which the Liberal Democrats choose to go into coalition with them. So I think that that's one of the problems of of trying to explain everything through the lens of the Progressive Alliance, or indeed voting as though one presently exists, because one doesn't. In terms of what happened, I think, in uh, North Shropshire, is that you had a lot of of votes lost for the Conservatives. Many of them stayed at home. And there is no indication that there is a return of moderates to Labour. Quite the opposite. There is an exodus of progressives to other parties. Now, that is not the promise of Keir Starmer. If you can't win over at least some soft Tories, or indeed Nick votes off the Liberal Democrats, it's unclear what his strategy is going to be in red wall seats. Who is he going for? Who is he going to get to turn out? Who is he going to you know, encourage to stay at home? Because the two that Labour have seriously uh, contested, and they were defensive by elections, they lost one and took one to a majority of just 323. So I do think this is part of a pattern of bad by elections for uh, Keir Starmer. I don't think it's simply all explicable through the lens of Liberal Democrats being good at by-elections, so that is a limited part of the story. Um, And I think that there is something misleading 
about this progressive alliance conversation and the way it's going on. That is not a pre- that is not a promise that's been written up by Ed Davey. You know, that's just someone on Twitter saying one exists. It doesn't. Lots of very good points there. I mean, at the same time, I'm 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 not of the position this is a disaster for Labour because I do feel like probably there was a lot of tactical voting going on there. Their candidate actually in their acceptance speech sort of said, I know lots of Labour voters lent me their vote and lots of Tory voters lent me their vote. I'll try and represent you all. So sort of, no one seems to be denying that that none of that went on. But we do have, I want to bring up some some more evidence for the prosecution against Keir Starmer because Labour did campaign in the constituency. It wasn't that they said, mm-hmm. nod in a wink, maybe you should vote Lib Dem. This is Angela Rayner, obviously the deputy leader. She was in the constituency two days before the vote canvassing. And even more striking is this advert from social media, which said the Lib Dems can't win here. So that was a, an advert from the Labour Party pushed to people to say that, you know, there's no way the Lib Dems can win if you want to get the Tories out vote for Labour. So that's kind of the opposite of a progressive alliance strategy. Obviously, the Lib Dems did, did win there. Um, there are, as Ash said, also other examples of Labour doing fairly poorly in recent by-elections, which cannot be put down to tactical voting. Um, so these are the Labour's vote shares and, and most importantly, changes um, in seats in by-elections since Starmer took over. Um, so you can see here Hartlepool, Labour, you know, that was a two-horse race between Labour and, and the Conservatives, and they were down 9%. Can't blame that on, on tactical voting. Cheshire and Amersham, that probably was a tactical voting one. That was people going to the Lib Dems. Batley and Spen, again, that was a seat that Labour were, were, were defending and they lost 7.4%. You can't put that down to tactical voting. So a mixed picture. For me, this one by-election on its own doesn't show this is a disaster for Keir Starmer. It's obviously way more of a disaster for Boris Johnson. But, um, you know, there isn't that much evidence that, that in by-elections where tactical voting isn't taking place, Labour are able to take advantage of that or people are tactically voting for the Labour Party because that would obviously you know if if there's a progressive alliance and you need it to go both ways let's go on to our next story nobody could have failed to notice that at Wednesday's Omicron press conference Prime Minister Boris Johnson and Chief Medical Officer Chris Whitty were speaking from different hymn sheets on the question of Christmas socialising I think that what most people are doing is and I would think this seems very sensible, is prioritising the social interactions that really matter to them and to protect those ones, deprioritising ones that matter much less to them. And I think that's going to become increasingly important as we, for example, go into the Christmas period. Um, Johnson had a pretty different view. I agree totally with Chris about uh, the the, the response that we're already seeing from everybody, our our general instinct to to be more cautious. Uh, But I I said many times that I thought that this Christmas will be uh, considerably better than last Christmas, and I I, I stick to that. Uh, We're not cancelling events, we're not closing hospitality, we're not cancelling people's parties or their ability to uh, to mix. What we are saying is, you know, think carefully before you go. Uh, what kind of an event is it? Are you likely to meet people who are vulnerable? Uh, are you going to meet loads of people you you, you haven't met before? Uh, and and uh, get a test. And I think that is very very good. Get make sure that there's ventilation. Uh, wear a mask on uh, on on transport. Uh, and get a test before you go. So. Uh, it's we're in a, we're in a, we're in a different environment thanks to the the boosters uh, from from where we were last year, but we've got to be cautious and think about it uh, whilst we wait for the for the benefits of of the boosters uh, really to to kick in. That's Boris Johnson saying. I agree with Chris. 
and then going on to say something rather different to what Chris Whitty had had said. And the point was was made further by Chris Whitty, who was, again, making it quite clear that he was of a slightly different stance to that of Boris Johnson. I mean, I don't have a huge amount to add to what uh, I said previously, which is I do think people should prioritise what matters, and that, by definition, means deprioritise other things. And I think people are doing that, and I, I think I would recommend that, and I think most people would recommend that. I don't think you need a medical degree to realise that is a sensible thing to do with an incredibly infectious virus about which there are quite a lot of key things uh, we don't know. So Chris Whitty, they're telling people, prioritise who you meet with. If it's not an important social engagement, don't do it. Limit the amount you go out. Boris Johnson obviously just saying, get a test and, and, and open the window. So very, very different. Some Tories thought Chris Whitty overstepped the mark there in giving different advice to that which was announced by the Prime Minister. Joy Morrissey is a junior government minister, so she tweeted, perhaps the unelected COVID public health spokesperson should defer to what our elected members of parliament and the Prime Minister have decided. I know it's difficult to remember, but that's how democracy works. This is not a public health socialist state. If it was a public health socialist state, maybe less people would have died from COVID-19, but that's a slightly different point. She quickly deleted that tweet and she doubled down with a second go. So this was this was the tweet which replaced the deleted one. I am increasingly concerned at public health pronouncements made in the media that already seem to exceed or contradict decisions made by our, our elected representatives. Expert advice is important, but decisions must be made by those we elect who are democratically accountable. The problem there being that Chris Whitty didn't make a decision there. He gave his opinion. He's an independent advisor. He's not a government spokesperson. He's a scientific advisor. Constitutionally, he's supposed to have some independence from, from the government and, and thank God. In the House of Commons, we've got more Tories who are upset. Stephen Brine or Steve Brine um, accused advisers of running the show. Listening last night at the Downing Street press conference, the Prime Minister, I could see why there was no statement to the House because no new government policy was announced. And then Professor Chris Whitty answered a question from the BBC. And at a stroke, the Chief Medical Officer changed government policy and put this country, certainly hospitality, and which does hospitality bears that out in what I'm hearing, into effective lockdown. Self-styled Brexit hard man Steve Baker was also complaining. Isn't it the case that what happens when officials give their advice is it has a massive capacity to herd the public into particular behaviours. So while the government has formally allowed hospitality businesses in particular to stay open, the reality in my constituency is that fantastic businesses like the old Queen's Head and Penn and Tyler's Green have seen massive uh, cancellations. So what reassurance can you give me that when officials speak, particularly at podiums at press conferences, that they are staying within the bounds of the policy that ministers have decided and that what ministers have decided takes into account the broad spectrum of collateral harms which follow from, for example, encouraging people not to mix together? So that was Steve Baker. You've seen a, a, a whole roll call of Tories complaining that, you know, not only are the government not following the science, but the scientists are refusing to follow the government. Uh, these scientists are not getting in line and saying exactly what we want them to say. They're saying what they genuinely think, what they genuinely think is, is the truth. They want them to be less honest, essentially. Ash, in this battle between Tory MPs and Chris Whitty, who's going to come out on top? In a sense, Chris Whitty, because the opinion that he's proffering at that press conference about reducing the amount of social contacts that you have, perhaps not going out in big, you know, crowded, enclosed indoor spaces, and that you 
just ultimately will have to restrict the amount you're interacting with people uh, in order to drive down transmission rates. That is in line with what the public is already doing. So there is a certain extent to which this discussion is already kind of moot because before this press conference, you did have cancellations uh, in hospitality, cancelled social plans, people starting to reassess what kind of Christmas they want to have, not because Chris Whitty or Patrick Valance, Jenny Harries or whoever else it might be is up in the podium scaring the shit out of them. It's because they can see with their own eyes what's going on. So it might be that they have tested positive. It might be that someone they know has tested positive. It might be that several people have had to self-isolate at work. It might be just they take a glance at the news and see day on day a record number of people testing positive and that doesn't even count reinfections. So I I think that when it comes to who's going to have more sway with the public, well, the the man who's up there lending scientific credence to what people already know as common sense is already more in tune. What I think is interesting is the impact that these, you know, frankly, right-wing, Thatcherite, libertarian wackos in the Conservative Party, what impact that might have on Boris Johnson, considering he is in an especially vulnerable position right now. He has hemorrhaged his poll lead because of the cumulative impact of last year's Christmas parties and also Owen Patterson and the uh, corruption revelations. You've seen a bruising by-election loss in North Shropshire, which is following, you know, somewhat hot in the heels of Chesham and Amersham. And you've also got that big rebellion, Tory backbenchers on the Plan B measures. So Boris Johnson might be swayed, not by the strength of the arguments being put out by, you know, Steve Baker or Joy Morrissey or Steve Bryan or whoever else it might be, because these are actually very poorly thought arguments. If you're worried about hospitality and you're worried about the impact of cancellations, just vote through an economic support package for affected businesses. That's quite that's quite simple. But Boris Johnson might make a political calculation in terms of what happens next. Uh, you know, does Christmas go ahead as planned with unlimited household mixing? Do hospitality venues remain open next week, through the week after, into the new year? What happens if hospitalizations and deaths start increasing in line with these record number of positive test results that we're seeing? Now, the vulnerability of his political position might be that he finds himself drawn to the short-term option of shoring up backbench support at the expense, of course, of people's lives, public health, and that might be the longer-term, more fatal wound. It makes them look incompetent and caring and feeling and sort of lays the groundwork for a competitor and a Tory leadership candidate. I agree with you that, that Chris Whitty is going to come out on, on top of this, not only, as you say, because his advice fits with the lived experience of everyone in the country right now, which is everyone left, right, centre is going down with, with Omicron. I don't think anyone really feels like going to Christmas party now, but also because he's, he's become quite assertive, actually. So he gave evidence to the Commons Health and Social Care Committee this week, where Dean Russell MP asked whether his advice prioritised COVID over cancer. Whitty didn't hold back. One of the other comments that I've heard is that people uh, are concerned that we're prioritising COVID over other things, and especially with with the the, uh, Omicron um, variant, you know, COVID over cancer, COVID over other other serious issues. What would you say to that? 
Yeah, I think uh, this this is sometimes said by people who have no understanding of health at all, but I don't think it's said by anyone who's serious, if I'm honest. Uh, and when they say it, it's usually because they want to make a political point. Um, the reality is, and if you ask any doctor working in any part of the system, they will say this, that what is threatening our ability to do cancer, what is threatening our ability to do all these things, is the fact that so much of the NHS effort so many of the beds are having to be put over to COVID uh, and that we're having to work in a less efficient way because COVID is there. The idea that the lockdowns cause the problems of things like cancer is a complete inversion of reality. If we had not had the lockdowns, the whole system would have been in deep, deep trouble and the impact on things like heart attacks and strokes and all the other things people must still come forward for when they have them would have been even worse than it was. So I do want through all of you to make absolutely clear that's an inversion of reality. This is sometimes said by people who have no idea what they're talking about. I really love that as a reply. Obviously, the point you make is incredibly important. There are arguments against lockdowns and, and restrictions. They do have an effect on, on mental health. They do have an effect on, on children's educations, our ability to socialise. But they don't cause more cancer to go untreated or more heart attacks to go untreated because the whole point is a lockdown is precisely to stop hospitals being overwhelmed. Hospitals didn't prioritise COVID over other illnesses. They were forced to, to treat people for COVID because they were people who were you know, quite close to death. And the lockdown you know, back then was the only way to, to stop them being completely overwhelmed. So they might have time to treat people for, for cancer or, or other urgent illnesses. On the issue of the public not really buying the Tory line on many of these issues, um, Minister Chris Philp got a rough ride on question time last night. The Prime Minister said people should think carefully before you go to pubs and restaurants, but, but, but absolutely said don't cancel parties. Chris Whitty said don't mix with people you don't have to for either work or family things that really matter to you. Yeah, look, the, the messaging is the same, which is be cautious and exercise judgment. It's pretty clear. So why do you think people are laughing at you saying that? That well, the messaging is the same. I mean, Why you can, do you think you can, people are you can try and pass the language, but the fundamental point is people well, it, can exercise it's just their about judgment, what they but just be cautious. Well, if it's not about, okay, if it's not about language and what people say, what is it about? Okay, let's. There's lots of people laughing. Let's hear from some of them. Uh, the man in the purple sweater. Uh, people are laughing because you're clowns. Uh, you said the minimum sensible measure twice, and a hundred of your MPs voted against it. What does that say about them? Is that not a mixed message? Going into Parliament without masks, is that not a missed message? You have to be told to put masks on. That, what do we do? We see that. We see you as the Christmas party. You're clowns. That's it. Yeah, well, if you walk into Parliament yesterday, you would have seen... Ash, I, did, I mean, did you feel sorry for, for Chris Philp there? I suppose he didn't make the policy. No, you know what? I feel thankful for Chris Philp because he perfectly embodied one of my favorite political TV tropes in the world. And that is when a member of the public is just ripping you to shreds in front of your face, telling you you're a prick, your mum's a prick, you know, your hair's stupid. And you just have to nod like, I'm really hearing you right now. And <laughs> I love seeing politicians backed into that corner because you can also see their mind go totally blank. It's like a trauma response, like a freeze response of, I just can't fully engage with what's happening right now. I just have to 
keep nodding. I love it. I love it. I, I love you, Chris Philp, for nodding so inanely as that man tore you to shreds. I wonder if they do that in sort of like their media training, you know, like like, like real hardcore training, where like or, or when you have to train like an SAS person to sort of take torture. I don't know if they actually do this but in the <laughs> films. You sort of train them to be able to be tortured and not give away the secrets. You have to sort of like just hurl insult after insult after insult at them and say, just keep nodding and smiling. Just keep nodding and like smiling. A, like a media equivalent of seer training. I want to deliver. Is that what <laughs> I, it's called? I think we'd be called? really good at it. I think we'd be good at that. <laughs> if you're a Tory who wants to practice being insulted, do get in touch. Info at navarromedia.com. Let's go straight to our next story. The government are refusing to officially close pubs and clubs, even while people have stopped attending them. It's put the hospitality industry in a very difficult place. They can't claim compensation because they haven't been told to close, but they don't have any customers. Now, this is the kind of position, the kind of situation where you would want the chancellor to step in and do something to provide some support. Yet so far, Rishi Sunak has done nothing. Potentially, that's because he's been distracted in California. He spent all week meeting tech bosses in Silicon Valley. His absence has been noted by the Labour Party. Every single time, whether it's Afghanistan when the Foreign Secretary was on a beach, whether it's now when businesses are falling over and the Chancellor is somewhere in California when he should be here working to keep our businesses going. Every single time, this is a government that goes missing in action and it's just not good enough. That was Lisa Nandy. Ryanair have also got in on the action. They tweeted, it's not often we plug our rivals, but there's plenty of flights from California back to the UK if you've got urgent business to attend to. Hashtag come back to help out. The mockery clearly shook. Rishi Sunak, he sent this Skype message to reassure the Brits. Well, I appreciate that it is a, a difficult time for the hospitality industry. That's why I was on the phone earlier today with various industry leaders from the hospitality space. <laughs> He's like a parody of himself. From the hospitality space. He's been spending too much time on like Facebook beanbags. He's planning to disrupt the, the, his hospitality space by, I suppose, removing the customers. Ash, Rishi Sunak is back. He's still offered nothing to hospitality whatsoever. How long do you think this can last? Because it is really cynical, isn't I it? Mean, Saying we're not going to close you, so we don't have to compensate you at the same time. You don't have any customers. It's real. You know, it's a catch twenty-two. I mean, look, he's been in the metaverse with people who are disruptors in the food and drink universe. So I kind of think, like, you know, you shouldn't be too harsh. I mean, it is wholly cynical, and that's one of the things that we were talking about at the very beginning with plan B and also the floated plan C, which is in a context of rising infections where businesses are having to deal with not only cancellations, declining customers, but also their staff having to take time off, self-isolate, so on and so forth. It's that removing the order to close um, is a technicality that the government use to say, well, you, you made your choice. You chose to close. We didn't say that. Insurance doesn't pay out. And so what are you supposed to do? Um, you have businesses, particularly in London, who are also making the decision from a moral perspective, which is, yeah, there's our bottom line. Christmas is, you know, one of our busiest and most lucrative times of the year. But to what extent do we want to be complicit in 
the spread and transmission of, of a hyper-transmissible variant of COVID. Um, the way around that is because I, I, you know, I, I, I'm not certain that closing down public life would be the right thing to do. I think we'd have to see what the hospitalizations look like at the minute, but making available a support package to businesses who are presently affected by COVID just seems like complete common sense. We have a horrific productivity rate in this country as well. And it's not going to get any better if you come out the other side of this pandemic and you had good, viable small businesses who were forced to shut down permanently because the government was you know, unwilling to borrow at what are still historically low interest rates, even, you know, even though they went up marginally this week as well. So yeah, it is it is wholly cynical. But that is also a, a second layer of cynicism, if you will. So if you think of this as a as a cynical trifle, we're we're really getting to the lazy fingers now, Michael. Is that Rishi Sunak loves a disappearing act. Anytime things get a bit sticky for his boss Boris Johnson, you see him nowhere. Right? He is like a ninja, just blends in with the wall. You will never see him move. He has, I think, quite consistently tried to build up a public perception of himself and kind of self-branding, which is independent of the Conservative Party and indeed Boris Johnson. He is the mate who, when you get in a fight, is like on the bus out of there. So there is also a layer of political cynicism here as as well as, as financial cynicism. That's a very good point. He is always nowhere to be seen. Although I do feel like in a way this could backfire this time around because there are a lot of people really pissed off. Like the, the airwaves are full of people who work in hospitality or who, you know, run restaurants and bars saying this is, we need them to do something. And, you know, we always thought of Rishi Sunak as someone who wanted to be popular. And if you want to be popular, then if 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 you, you've got a, you know, in, in many ways a lockdown in all but name, then you're going to have to provide some some support. Because small business owners as well, they're not people who will never vote Tory. I'd have thought they'd be the people he doesn't want to piss off, but he's definitely doing it at the moment. Let's go to our next story. As Omicron rips through the British population, we are told we should be responsible. We should take personal responsibility to try and slow the spread and to try and limit the pressure on our hospitals. What does being responsible mean? It means that if you've got symptoms of COVID-19, you should stay at home. If you've tested positive for COVID-19, you should, you should definitely stay at home. Well, what happens if you aren't able to? What happens if you try and do the responsible thing and your boss says no? There have been countless examples of this throughout the pandemic, and we've got another one for you today. Rachel Bayliss had been working at the Walrus Pub in Brighton for three months when on Tuesday night, she developed a fever and cough, both two of the three symptoms of COVID, the three key symptoms of COVID that happened while she was at work. The 22-year-old reported her illness to her manager and asked if she could go home, but that request was denied. She could only go home if she found cover for herself. If you've got COVID symptoms, you're allowed to go home, but you're, you're allowed to go home if you find someone else to stand in for you today. A quick lateral flow test came back negative, so despite feeling unwell, Rachel completed her shift. The next day, however, a colleague reported that they were off with COVID-19. Rachel, who had two out of three of the main COVID symptoms, emailed her bosses to say that she would stay off work and arrange a PCR test. This is exactly what you're supposed to do according to the government. This is their guidance. 
So this is on the government website. If you have COVID-19 symptoms, you should stay at home and self-isolate immediately. You should arrange to have a PCR test as soon as possible. If this PCR test is positive, you must continue to self-isolate. So Rachel was very much following the advice of the government. However, her bosses were not having any of it. So they wrote back, Hi, Rachel. Company policy is that you need to do a LFT to get signed off work. If that is positive, you book a PCR and isolate until you get the results. Please note the below is not acceptable to not come in for your shift tonight. So the below being, you know, having two out of three of, of the main NHS symptoms for COVID-19. Of course, they say company policy. That's not government policy. This is the government's guidance for employers in the hospitality sector. Um, so again, this is from the government website. Staff members or customers should self-isolate immediately if they show any symptoms of COVID-19 and book a PCR test as soon as possible, even if they are fully vaccinated. So Rachel is, is clearly in the right here. Her boss is clearly in the wrong. Rachel writes back again, rightly, bravely, um, that she is going to resign over this. She received this startling response from the manager of the walrus. So he says, hi, Rachel, thank you for the below. However, I do not accept your resignation due to the below issues I was going to discuss with you in person today at the start of your shift before terminating your probation period. So he says, you have shown a clear lack of respect for management request procedures over the last week, which reached a tipping point last night. You threatened to walk out numerous times last night when she had COVID symptoms, changed clothes and sat outside before you were told by the shift manager you could finish. You were also not allowed back in the walrus as a customer for the next three months. I wish you all the best in your future endeavours. So her boss, he's already done something which is completely counter to public health, something which is completely irresponsible for someone to come in with symptoms, basically. Now he won't accept her resignation because he wants to fire her instead. It's like a, a massive danger, also massively petty. Now, since this exchange with her boss, Rachel has tested positive for COVID-19. She had COVID-19. She was in the right. Thank God she didn't go into work. I spoke to her earlier today. They have a policy at this pub where you have to go in when you're sick to prove that you're sick um, to then be sent home. And I knew that I would be sacked, basically, and like they didn't really have any sort of affection for any staff there, really. So I went in when I was ill, asked to go home. They said, have you got any cover? And I was like, no. So I was feverish all night on shift. And then the next day, someone tested positive for COVID. And I was like, oh, so this could not just be a flu. It could be covid and I sent an email to my manager saying, um, I've got two out of three symptoms. I'm awaiting a PCR test and I'm not coming in tonight. To which they responded, that is an unacceptable reason. You need to do a lateral flow. This is company policy. It isn't company policy. And he made it up. Um, and then you wait for a PCR test. And then I responded saying lateral flows are unreliable. Someone else has tested positive for COVID. I'm not comfortable with doing that. Please accept this as my notice. Are there other people you work with who you, who you think were also uncomfortable going into work symptomatic, but didn't feel that they were able to, you know, put their foot down in the way that you did. Yeah, I think definitely. Like, I think generally the sickness policy there was like really frustrating for a lot of people. And since um, I've come out with a story, previous workers have also come in saying that they were forced to work Christmas Day last year with a member of staff that clearly had COVID. Same manager knew that people had COVID, made them serve customers um, in a restaurant on Christmas Day when they had COVID, um, and also someone else was forced to work with food poisoning. So. Um, this is all previous staff members that are saying this. Um, I think current staff members are quite afraid of losing their jobs, which rightly so. Um, and I wish them like that this doesn't affect them. And I'm going to be fighting to hope that the pub takes responsibility and make sure all staff members are looked after.
We understand that the owners of, of the Walrus, so that's the City Pub Group, are investigating. They say, as a company, we place paramount importance on the health and welfare of our colleagues and customers, particularly during the ongoing pandemic challenges. This takes precedence over any other considerations. Rachel, how would you respond to that statement from, from the City Pub Group? That would be great if it was true of my experience with city pubs, but unfortunately it's not, as you can see from the very clear email evidence where I was like pressured to come in when I was presenting symptoms of COVID. And in terms of welfare, um, I know there's been other allegations at HR against this manager for previous behaviour incidents. So there's that too. But yeah, I would say that great statement, not the reality. You know, you've obviously had a very eventful week. You've lost your job. You've got covid at the same time, you've also, you know, you've gone viral with this particular story. Um, very brave, I think, to go public with something like this. Can, can you tell us, you know, about your your experience of of having such a such a big response to sharing what what happened to you? Well, what I kind of find 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 the funniest in a way is all of this like dignified outrage. Like, I can't believe this is happening. Ask any worker that's ever worked in hospitality or a service industry that's on a low wage, um, unregulated, zero rights from day one. This is so like normal. Like this isn't even a shock. Like even the people that work there, like they know it's wrong, but it's kind of like, well, you know, we get 50% off that side of hours. Like it's materially on paper. That's the best pub job I've ever had in terms of pay above minimum wage rate, you know, free meal on shift over eight hours. Um, but like just, just being forced to work when you're very clearly ill and endangering staff and customers. Um, that's just not great at all. But yeah, I think with the response, um, rightly so. And I think I'm really glad that hospitality is finally getting this attention, especially because as one of the industries that was so neglected during COVID, yeah, it was the one that everyone wanted to reopen. And the workers there are often not only treated less than human by managers, but we're often treated as less than human by staff. We face a lot of abuse, whether people are drunk or not, you know, people don't like listen to us or what we're saying. And especially during the pandemic, I worked in a bar when there's still restrictions and having to tell people to keep their mask on and sit down the amount of verbal abuse you receive from that and it's just like I think it's about time hospitality work was seen as it's, it's real work it's very hard none of these people in Westminster could do it I guarantee try do a 13-hour shift on a Saturday and then have a nine-hour on the next day on a Sunday they wouldn't do it that was the the very impressive Rachel Bayliss who's who's done us all a great service People refusing to go into work when you're being told to go in with symptoms, that's very, very brave. Although saying that, I do know actually because, you know, Rachel told me at the beginning, she does have another job lined up. So she was in quite a unique position where she was willing to put her foot down in, in that way. Most people working in hospitality, even if they wanted to put their foot down, they're, they're unable to. We know this is an unequal power relationship. A boss has power over their employees because they need that job for money. Right. So, so, and, and all the people I know in hospitality are saying exactly the same thing, which is they're always told to come into work if they, you know, unless it's a hundred percent certain that they have COVID-19 and it's putting a lot of people at risk. And it's something which when the government say, oh, this is all about personal responsibility, they, they just completely ignore, which is that it's actually, you know, you're, you're in quite a privileged position if you are able to take that kind of personal responsibility. If you work in a sector where if you say, oh, I think I should probably work from home today because I, I've got the sniffles, they say yes. Or if you think I've got two of the three symptoms of COVID, they say, well, have a day off because you're clearly sick. That, that's only some sectors where that is possible. Too many, it's not. And it's it's something which, I mean, for obvious reasons, the Conservatives don't talk enough about. And to be honest, I, I don't think Labour do either. 
we are all liable to, to lose our memories a little bit as we get older. But Keir Starmer seems to have suffered full-on amnesia in the space of 18 months. Not only has he forgotten that he once was a socialist, he can't even remember what the word means. This was Starmer in March 2020, still campaigning in the Labour Party leadership election. Back then, he said, I still see myself as a socialist. Whether I still agree with everything I did or said in my 20s is another matter. You gain experiences as you go along, but I would still call myself a socialist. Now, the, the saying that he's, he's still a socialist is because Starmer does have a past. On the far left, he was a former member of the editorial collective of the magazine Socialist Alternatives. So he would have penned lots of articles about socialism and, and what it all means. But now it turns out he doesn't remember what it is. The I newspaper in an exclusive interview reported the following. So as he seeks to move Labour to the centre ground, Sir Keir refuses to say that he's a socialist. This is what he says. What does that mean, he asks, before adding, the Labour Party is a party that believes that we get the best from each other when we come together collectively and ensure that, you know, we give people both opportunity and support as needed. So he's asked, if he's a socialist, he said, what does that mean? 18 months ago, you were one, Keir. What happened in the meantime? You, you suddenly thought, oh, actually, this concept's so com complex. I clearly couldn't identify myself with... With, with you know such a, a deep concept as a socialist, I'll, I'll just stand back and say I believe in opportunity. You know what? The way men can lie, the way they can look you in the eye and say, what does socialism mean? I've never met that woman in my life before. No, that's not my kid. The way I did not have sexual relations with that woman. I did not have socialist relations with that ideology. Um, just looking at you, dead in the face. I, I don't think that the immediate lie has great political salience outside of the left and left Twitter and people who say, look, this is another example of him having said one thing to his party membership to get the top job and then another thing to the public, a complete abandonment of his pledges, his promises and his principles. The things that he says distinguish him from Boris Johnson. I don't think that necessarily that is something which is going to break out because fundamentally nobody in elite media sees a problem with breaking a promise to a party membership because they see the party membership as crazed leftist anti-Semites anyway. They've been so successfully denigrated. However, that doesn't mean that this can't come back to bite Keir Starmer. Generally, I think that it is more harmful than good for a Labour politician to be unprincipled and, you know, wholly malleable when it comes to, you know, their own personal morality. I think that ultimately it comes to bite them in the arse in a way that things don't tend to for the Conservative Party. But another is you can imagine this coming up, say, during a general election, during a leader's debate where you've got, you know, Emma Barnett saying, you know, well, are you a socialist? Would you nationalise sausages or whatever it is? Keir Starmer going, no, what does that mean? Or I believe in Labour coming together businesses and families and pets all striving their hardest or whatever it is. You can see him saying that. And then you have a litany of like, but this is when you called yourself a socialist. That was two years ago. Or like, this is when you called yourself a socialist. It's in print here and so on and so forth. It's something which makes him look, I think, just really foolish and untrustworthy. So while I don't think that there are immediate electoral downsides right now, 
the more Keir Starmer turns his back on things that he said in print, on camera, in 4K, the more he sets up confrontations which make him look, quite frankly, like either a liar or an idiot. Due to multiple appalling high-profile instances of, of sexual violence this year, the topic of, of how to teach or, or socialise men not to be abusive has, has rightly got a fair deal of attention. On the topic of, of sexual harassment, the office of the Mayor of Greater Manchester released a, a video on, on this. Um, it's gone down pretty well on, on social media. It's gone really viral, a million views. Let's take a look. Very nice. <laughs> yeah, she's alright. Yeah, no worries. See you soon. Bye. Hey, beautiful. Give us a smile. Bet you're almost pretty when you smile. I don't ignore me. Come on, love. Think you're better than me, yeah? You're not even that fit. What? You're not gonna invite me now? Yeah, you're asking for it dressed like that. Are we off tonight? <laughs> I should definitely wants it. Are you sexy? Do you think this is okay? So that video was put out by the office of the mayor of Greater Manchester. So Andy Burnham tweeted it out, but presumably it was it was made by people in his team. Um, Ash, that video has got lots of praise. I thought this was a, a really good video because the emotions of it rang very, very true. From the things which seem quite micro. So when you're a woman and you're out and about and you see a glance, and it can be just something as small as a glance, which makes you reassess, should I keep walking the way I'm walking? Should I change my route? If I do continue the way I'm walking, is that man going to take it as a sign of like sexual interest on my part? And then how do I diffuse that situation? And the cumulative impact of having to navigate those kinds of interactions on a day-to-day -day basis, it is utterly exhausting. And so I think the way in which this piece of video really locates the emotion in the female experience of those things I thought was really powerful and I think that lots of women were saying yeah that, that that is how it is I think there's also something perhaps inherently it, there's a challenge to men who are watching the video you're asking them is this okay and this is where maybe I think we've gotten to something of like an impasse or like a blocked off road because I think that most men watching that would go, of course, no, that's not okay. If not, basically all men would say, of course, that's not okay. But that doesn't necessarily change how they themselves behave when they're out there in the world or interacting with women. And I think that we're still struggling to navigate that chasm between 
the public disavowal of sexual harassment and sexual violence. And that in private or in public spaces where men feel a lack of accountability, that their behavior is very, very different and and not in line with the kind of morality that they like to project out there to other people, or indeed the kinds of things they might say to, you know, their moms, their sisters, their girlfriends, their friends. Bell Hooks died yesterday. And it, it made me think watching this video of one of her books, which is called The Will to Change, which is really about how men are socialized into their masculinity. And the two things that happen to men growing up, which is one, they're hurt. And then two, they're taught to deny their feelings. And then three, there is the sort of that comes out in this really weird way of like misogynistic violence, harassment, belittlement, all of these kinds of things. And one of the challenging things that Bell Hooks says is that women are a part of that socialization of men too. We, we also help uphold some of these patriarchal expectations of men, which then produce misogynistic behavior. And so I think that this is a great video. I'm really all for it. But what I also want is for us to go beyond thinking of sexual violence, sexual harassment, or misogyny as something which we solve by sharing content that emotionally resonates with us. And we can sort of say something about ourselves by sharing it. And maybe we get into, I think, that really deep down, nitty gritty stuff that Bell Hooks is talking about in terms of, well, what emotional need is being served by the expressions of misogyny or sexual harassment? And and how is that related to the way in which men are socialized into their masculinity. Like, can you make that into a, into a video? You make that into a short video? Yeah. I, watch that one. I, I mean, you know what? Uh, we are actually working on something about, I guess, rape culture at the moment. Uh, me and our lovely esteemed colleague, Gary, our head of video, where we're trying to sort of get behind the sort of content churn and the shareables and really get into the kind of layered, contradictory, the complex stuff to do with rape culture and how we navigate it as women. Because I think that there is a very surface level thing, which is, oh, all this stuff occurs in silence. But, well, no, actually, we talk about sexual violence an awful lot. It, it doesn't occur in silence. It's one of the easiest things to get people to agree is bad, which is rape, mm. um, but, but it's still going on. And so you kind of have to like get into that and move past that bit where we're trying to say something about ourselves through slogans and through content and through, I guess, a kind of self-branding. I mean, also, there's obviously the, like the, the structural issues of the criminal justice system. As I was listening to, I think it was The World at One yesterday, she was speaking to the, the policing minister, and you saying, we're going to try and double... The, the number of convictions for people are, you know, accused of, of rape. And she's like, well, what is it now? 0.6%. So it's going to go up to 1.2%. It's, it's not very impressive. We've already talked this week about many of the failings of the Metropolitan Police when it comes to issues such as that. Ash, thank you so much for joining me this evening, especially as I might have a lonely 10 days. Oh, Michael. Well, I'm just really glad that... You're here and you're hosting through your illness, and I hope that it stays mild for you. Yeah, me too. Well, I'll get my confirmation tomorrow. Although, actually, you know, if you, if you go on Twitter and you look at all the people doing their Bayesian statistics, if you get a positive on a lateral flow test and then you get a negative on a PCR, it might be the PCR that's mistaken. I suppose in that instance, you can take two. Anyway, I'll get some experts to talk about that next week. 
We'll be back on Monday at 7pm. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.